So Exodus 22, starting at verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we were strangers in the land of Egypt. Give us the compassion that you have, for you are gracious. We thank you for this book of the covenant that shows us your character and that shapes our character. And we ask, Father, that you would shape our character through your word tonight. Make us a just and pious people who speak well of our rulers and who speak well of our God, who do right and justice in every legal matter that comes before us, who do not charge interest to the poor, who honor those who fear the Lord. Make us those people. Show us your Son as the perfect Israelite who has done and is doing all of these things. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, this command about not mistreating the stranger is surely one of the most important commands in the Pentateuch. Now, right off the bat, there's disagreement about how important it is. One Jewish commentator says that the command occurs 36 times. The Christian commentator said it occurs 20 times. I'm not sure how those men arrived at those numbers. But as we read in Deuteronomy, it certainly appears repeatedly, and of course twice in this passage. The demand that we love the stranger 
and treat him in accordance with justice is central to the message of the book of the covenant. The call to worship God is also central to the message of the book of the covenant, and both of those are present in this text. Justice toward others on the horizontal level, piety towards God on the vertical level. That is what this book of the covenant teaches and enforces. Remember, the book of the covenant is God's worked examples of how to live out the Ten Commandments in the less than perfect nitty-gritty of everyday life. So in a situation where things have already been done wrong and are going wrong, when life is not perfect, how do you keep commandments 1 through 10? Well, the book of the covenant addresses that those situations. Thus, for instance, verse 22, a widow or fatherless child. Things have already gone wrong. What do you do in that instance? We'll talk about that in just a moment. The point, clearly, here as in the rest of the book of the covenant, is God's people must be just to one another and to the stranger and show piety in their worship of God. We start with the command to show justice toward the weaker, and God starts with the first weaker person is the stranger. You shall not oppress a stranger. This word oppress means to squeeze. Don't squeeze the stranger and try to extract money out of him just because he's far from the place of his birth and therefore ignorant. Ogden Nash has a poem about you ignorant foreigner that whoever is away from where they were born seems ignorant because they didn't grow up there. And they don't get the customs, the traditions, oftentimes the language, the culture of the place where they are. God simply tells us here the golden rule as applied to the stranger. How would you want to be treated in China or South Africa or Chile if you happen to find yourself living in one of those countries? Well, treat immigrants here that same way. Love your neighbor as yourself. God says, you didn't fit in. You weren't Egyptians. You were Hebrews in Egypt. You wanted to be treated well by the Egyptians. Treat others well. And in Deuteronomy, we saw God loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing, tangible <laughs> ways of showing love, not just saying, hey, we appreciate Koreans. Have a nice day. But more than that, actually welcoming them with gifts of food and clothing. Uh, anyway, God quickly moves on in this section to the next weaker party, the widow and the orphan. Don't afflict or squeeze those people. Don't look at them as candidates for easy targets to make money from. And what God says here is fascinating. If you afflict them anyway and they cry it all to me, I will surely hear... Their cry. God listens to the prayer of the widow and orphan. In our country, we have huge swarms of widows and orphans. Certainly when you count divorced women as widows and children whose parents are split up as orphans, lots and lots of such people. In fact, I've read that we are number one in the world for single-parent households. What an enviable distinction. Well... The if, if people were crying out to God, he would hear their cry. I fear that many of our widows and orphans don't cry to God. Don't have any idea that the situation they're in is something he could help with. 
But the scary thing is what he says here. If they cry, my wrath will burn. But he doesn't say, and I will bring back their missing dad. And I will restore their family. And it will be a wonderful, happy, loving, whole family. He doesn't say that. It's the opposite. If you let this cycle get started, if they cry to me, I will hear their cry, and I will make your children fatherless and your wives widows. If we harm widows and orphans, there will be more broken, unhappy families. And the more they pray and say, God, help me, my family is horrible, the more people, the more families God will attack and destroy. Now, that's a heavy message. It would certainly explain why the situation continues to compound on itself and get worse all around us. Anyone who's asking for help, God responds with judgment to that. You attack the widow and orphan, your children will be fatherless, your wife a widow. So none of us are divorce lawyers. None of us are trying to break up families. None of us are involved in passing laws or hopefully creating a culture that encourages people to break up their marriages and orphan their children. So how does this passage apply to us? I think the most obvious answer is that we need to love the widows and the orphans that God puts around us. Some of us in this church are dealing with widowed parents. your, Your father is dead. Your mother is a widow. And you need to care for her. Or you have a friend who's a widow. You have children in your life as a foster parent, as an adoptive parent, or just as a relative. My parents have spent many years and lots of money helping mom's widowed sister-in-law. This is part of what we're called to do in terms of caring for the widow and orphan. They won't always be grateful. They won't always appreciate it. They won't always have any idea that you are helping them. But you're not doing it for their plaudits. God says, do it for me. Love the widow and the orphan. Failure to love is a sin of omission. It is just as bad, in some sense, as being the divorce lawyer, as being the lawmaker who passes the no-fault divorce law and says, we don't care about the future of American children. So love the widow, love the orphan. And the poor. If you lend money to the poor, don't be like a money lender to him. God defines what that means. To be like a money lender is the charging of interest. Now there's a distinction here. God is not saying, if you lend money, you always have to do it for nothing. That's not the statement. And charging of interest refers to charging a price that rises every day. That's the charging of interest part that God forbids. So there's been much discussion on this within the church, uh, within Judaism, within Islam, over the last many centuries. Rabbinic law and Islamic law still forbid the charging of interest. The Roman Catholic Church 
attempted to forbid it for a long time. That started to break down more and more commonly right around the Renaissance era, the time of the Reformation. Calvin exegeted this text and said, God is only talking about a personal loan to an individual poor person. He's not talking about a commercial loan. You can charge interest on a commercial loan. And thus was born the modern monetary and banking system and all the interest that is charged there. Anyway, I think Calvin was wrong. The text is not just speaking about giving money to a poor person. It is saying, yes, across the board, it is sinful and wicked to charge interest defined as a price that rises every single day. I charge you 1% per day. I loaned you $100 on Tuesday. On Wednesday, you owe $101. (coughs) On Thursday, you owe $102.10. On Friday, you owe $103.12. And so it goes. Excuse me. So God bans the charging of interest. He says, I require you to be generous. Now the records that we have indicate that interest rates of 20 to 33% per year were commonly charged in Moses' day on grain or money. So 20% interest, 33% interest. You can still see that on credit card bills today. Basically those exact rates. I'm sorry about my voice. So, God is not saying that you can, can't can charge for money. He's saying you can charge a flat fee. But you may not charge a fee that constantly increases. So, God is compassionate. And that's why he doesn't allow for the charging of interest. He has mercy on human misery. He sees people struggling, hurting, and he cares rather than not caring. When he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Now, it's interesting, he doesn't say what he'll do. If you put it in parallel with the previous verse, it certainly makes it sound like God would be saying, I will put you into debt, and I will charge you interest, and you will be impoverished by someone lending money to you. Well, we move from justice towards those who are weaker than us, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the stranger, and we move to the theme of piety towards God here in the center of the passage. We start with the command to honor the name of God. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Paul quoted this text when he was struck at the high priest's command back in Acts, what, 24, 25. Moses puts these two in parallel. Now, uh, on my high school senior trip, we visited England. We went to a church, St. Martin in the Fields. And I went to the bathroom in that church, and somebody had scribbled... uh, 
blasphemies on the walls of the bathroom stall inside a church. And I was very shocked as a naive homeschooler. But God puts that, that whole writing blasphemies on the wall of the church, right in the same category as disparaging a ruler of our people. The let's go Brandon shirts and all those kinds of things. God's basically, you know, in the same breath, in the same sentence, you shall not revile God, nor curse the ruler of your people. Those things go together. Piety demands both of those things. And the same goes for the, the next verse, don't delay to offer your offerings to God. So don't get behind on giving to the church. Don't say, well, I would like to give a tithe and when my taxes come in next year, I will probably be able to do so. The verse says, don't delay your offerings. Don't hold them back. The same goes for baptizing your children. Don't wait. Don't say, well, the relatives can all be here in six months, so we'll do it then. Dedicate your firstborn to me, God says. And don't delay. Do it as quickly as you reasonably can. Finally, though, we have, uh, well, we have the same statement about the animals, the oxen, the sheep. It all belongs to God. Verse 31, you shall be holy to me. And then God defines holiness here, not in moral terms, unlike the rest of the chapter, but in ritual terms. Don't eat defiled meat. Give defiled meat to the dogs. Now, what does he mean? Well, ritual holiness has passed away. Jesus specifically addressed this idea of defiled food and said, no such thing. All meats are clean. Eat whatever you want. Purity laws regarding food were to teach people about holiness. But they are not the same thing as holiness, ethically speaking. In ritual terms, food defiles. In moral terms, only sin defiles. Live a holy life, abstain from sin, and you will be clean. Now, at the same time, I still don't recommend eating meat torn by wild beasts in the field. Not a good idea. But not because it makes you unholy, in God's sight, rather because it makes you sick and dead in physical terms. Well, God returns to the theme of justice at the beginning of chapter 23. Don't circulate a false report. Tell the truth. This is a key principle of justice. In large American cities, over 40% of murders have no arrest made. The police are unable to identify even a suspect that would give them probable cause to arrest that person. Why is that? The overwhelming answer is that people won't talk to the cops. They don't trust the police, and so they clam up. The investigator says, does anybody know anything about this murder? Silence, crickets. Nobody knows anything about the murder. Now, of course, people know what happened. And if the witnesses came forward to testify, an arrest could be made and the murder could be cleared up. Which is why the Lord says, 
Tell the truth. Don't circulate a false report. Don't be an unrighteous witness. Be a righteous witness. The first principle of justice is tell the truth. Without individuals speaking up to describe what they know, crimes cannot be solved. Justice cannot be done by human courts without people telling the truth. God also then warns us about partnering with the wicked. Don't put in your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. So if there's one or two wicked people saying, let's all get our story together so that we can convict this innocent person and remove suspicion from ourselves. God says, no. <coughs> don't partner with those people. And above all, don't join with the crowd to pervert justice. If there's a mob bang for somebody's blood, don't join the mob. Right? We as Christians are radically opposed to mob action of any and every stripe. It doesn't matter what the mob is doing, what cause the mob claims to be standing for. If it's a mob, then it is perverting justice. Don't turn aside after the many to pervert that justice. Whether the crowd says, the mob says, we're going to go lynch that black man, well, don't join that mob. Or, we're going to go invade that capital, right? Don't join that mob. We're going to go invade Harvard University faculty lounge. Don't join that mob. It doesn't matter what the mob says they're doing or what you think of the cause they claim to espouse. You shall not turn aside after them to pervert justice. But also, don't favor the poor. God is compassionate. God loves the poor, as he said over and over in the book of the covenant. So he says, now if you're judging and a poor man says, this rich man hurt me, don't automatically say, yep, the rich man must have hurt you. Ain't necessarily so. Justice doesn't mean automatically favoring the poor. The one, the underdog, the person who is, has more intersectionality points, however you want to put it, isn't necessarily the victim. <clears throat> the, the text then turns to speak of loving your enemy. It's saying, if you see your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you have to bring it back to him. Don't take out your hatred for your enemy on his animals. If you see his donkey lying down under its burden, help it. Don't just say, ha, well, my neighbor's donkey is suffering. Let him suffer. I don't care about my neighbor. Justice and only justice, Deuteronomy 16 says, justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Well, our text winds up basically with six principles of justice. Give justice to the poor. The legal system, you can tell how righteous it is by what kind of justice the poor can get. In the ancient Near East, as today, the people who can afford the expensive lawyers can get more, well, they get more out of the court. A true justice system protects the poor as well. <coughs> the second principle of justice Tell the truth. Again, very important. We just talked about that. Do not kill the innocent and righteous by telling a lie. 
I will not justify the wicked. Acquit the innocent, God says. Unfortunately, in our day, this idea of getting innocent people out of jail has come to be a political cause associated with the left. But it's not a political cause. It is a moral cause. And God specifically says, don't kill the innocent and righteous. Someone who didn't do it shouldn't be in prison, shouldn't be on death row. It's that simple. I will not justify the wicked. That's the justice of God. To justify is to declare someone righteous. And God says, I can't do that, and I won't do that. Shakespeare as well comments on this one. Uh, The Lord Chancellor in the play Henry VI, Part 2, says these words. Like, I think it's his sister asking him to do her a favor. Spring me out of jail. Something like that. And he says, I cannot justify whom the law condemns. Justify means to declare righteous. And that's how Shakespeare uses the word. That's how Moses uses the word right here. I cannot justify whom the law condemns. The law says you're guilty. You're guilty. And I will declare you guilty. If I'm Lord Chancellor of England, or if I am the God of the universe. Because that's what justice demands. Now God says that here. I will not justify the wicked. And yet, of course, Romans tells us that God does justify the ungodly and declare us to be righteous. The way he does that is by substituting another person in our place to take the penalty our sins deserve. God damns the wicked He doesn't justify them. And he damned, condemned Jesus so that he could justify us and transform us from being wicked to being righteous. Shun bribes. You shall take no bribe. Bribes are, well, what do they do? They pervert, blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Somebody who's willing to take a bribe is somebody who is willing to pervert justice. Somebody who is willing to justify the one whom the law condemns. And God says, no bribes ever. Don't take a bribe. Don't give a bribe. And our passage winds up again with the command to love the stranger. Don't squeeze the stranger because you know the heart of a stranger. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Golden rule is right here. You know how a stranger feels. Welcome the stranger the way you want to be welcomed. If your desires are shaped by God, if your heart is shaped by being in covenant with God, you won't want to be acquitted when you're guilty. You'll remember that you're a stranger and pilgrim on earth and welcome others who are strangers and pilgrims. Above all, you'll look to the Son of God who kept every precept in this text of justice toward others and piety toward God, remembering his widowed mother and handing her over to the care of John from the cross. Jesus loved his neighbors. He sought our good. He came from heaven to earth to take care of us. 
in him, we are empowered to walk in justice toward others because we walk in piety towards him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be the kind of people holy to you that this text describes. <coughs> we thank you, Father, for your Son, the holiest, most righteous one of all, who perfectly kept every precept of your word, and who is perfectly pious and worshipful towards you, his Father. Lord, help us to be like him. Help us to see that this book of the covenant describes our Lord Jesus and help us shape us by your spirit so that we resemble him more and more and more. We ask these things, Father, in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.